What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From high atop the Jack-Jack Memorial Reading Throne here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library within the wilds of Connecticut. This is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black. We are very, very quickly nearing the end. This is episode 73 of 75. And... It's impossible not to reflect backwards on this journey for me. Look, it's been a silly podcast, right? Just a podcast, just a silly podcast, a dumb idea. Read this book out loud, comment on it as you go. But as we near the end, as you near the end of anything, um, it is impossible not to reflect. And my reflections right now are more of the spirit than anything else. When last we left Jude, he was tottering almost uh, spectrally along the cobblestone streets of Christminster, Arabella at his side, remarking that he, uh, he, he was almost seeing ghosts, but that he doesn't believe in half of them anymore. And I'm not sure how much to share about what's going on in my own life right now. I will keep it somewhat brief, but I am dealing with a friend who is dying. And so he's, he's as I record this, kind of in that liminal state between life and death. And uh, I've known him for... Oh, almost 20 years, I guess. And he lives in the town in which I live here in the wilds of Connecticut. And my wife and I and his family and all his friends have been helping and doing our best to support his family in this time. And so those words of seeing and hearing ghosts and whether or not you believe in them have some special resonance for me 
right now. Um, yeah, it's been it's it, uh, since last I recorded. It has been a, uh, a, a, a a somewhat strange time because I just saw this friend. We hung out maybe three weeks ago, and he was seeming to be very well. He he had received a poor diagnosis two and a half years ago, um, and you know it's been up and down since then, but he seemed to be on the mend and we were together for an evening and having a good time. Three days later, he was back in the hospital and he has not, he didn't emerge well again. He's home now in hospice. So yeah, as I said, the spiritual element of the last episode resonates with me as does Jude's own liminal state right now, because we know Jude himself is hovering near death and is seeking his own kind of penance and redemption. The expression of Jude's corpse-like face in the watery lamplight was indeed as if he saw people where there was nobody. At moments, he stood still by an archway, like one watching a figure walk out. Then he would look at a window, like one discerning a familiar face behind it. He seemed to hear voices, whose words he repeated as if to gather their meaning. They seem laughing at me. Who? Oh, I was talking to myself. The phantoms all about here in the college archways and windows. They used to look friendly in the old days, particularly Addison and Gibbon and Johnson and Dr. Brown and Bishop Ken. Come along, do phantoms. There's neither living nor dead hereabouts except a damn policeman. I never saw the streets emptier. Fancy, the poet of liberty used to walk here and the great dissector of melancholy there. And we've reached our first footnote. 65. No doubt the poet of liberty is Shelley and the great dissector of melancholy, Robert Burton, the author of The Anatomy of Melancholy from 1621. And so, you know, Jude is going through that thing that people seem to go through when they are in their last moments, when they see those who have come before, reaching out to them, speaking to them, in this case, laughing at him. Now, what's what Jude doesn't describe here is the manner in which they are laughing at him. I mean, the, on first reading, I thought to myself, you know, they, they, were, they were laughing somewhat derisively at him for his own foibles and failures. But maybe they're laughing as a kind of, I don't know, maybe they're laughing in sympathy, you know, they're laughing in the way that that you laugh uh, with somebody who has just learned a painful lesson that you have been trying to impart upon them and they finally get it. And so you laugh and it's a laugh of recognition. That's the laugh that I'm going to choose for these ghosts. I don't want to hear about them. They bore me. Well, they would, Arabella. They would. Because you, because you have no time for self-reflection. There is no self-reflection capability 
within Arabella. Who will visit her on her deathbed? Who will come to her and guide her away? The publican, perhaps? No. Do you know who it'll be? It'll be Jude. It will be Jude waiting for her, and he will welcome her, and he will have forgiven her, and he may laugh with her in the same way that these ghosts are laughing with him as Arabella crosses over and he sees her in her spiritual self, the wanting girl, the striving girl, the the frustrated girl, the girl who wanted more than she could have. She has a ravenous appetite. And in different times, that appetite could have been sated, perhaps, by other things. But in these times, she could only grasp uh, the way a drowning person grasps. Walter Raleigh is beckoning to me from that lane. Wycliffe, Harvey, Hooker, Arnold, and a whole crowd of Tractarian shades. Okay, now I'm getting bored. Now I'm getting bored listening to you name drop all these authors. I mean, you know, the point's been made, Hardy. The point has been made. I don't want to know their names, I tell you. What do I care about folk dead and gone? Upon my soul, you are more sober when you've been drinking than when you have not. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah. But, you know, then again, Arabella, he is dying. And sometimes people kind of hallucinate when they're dying and they see things. I must rest a moment, he said. And as he paused, holding to the railings, he measured with his eye the height of a college front. This is old rubric, and that sarcophagus, and up that lane Crozier and Tudor, and all down there is Cardinal with its long front, and its windows with lifted eyebrows representing the polite surprise of the university at the efforts of such as I. Come along and I'll treat you. Very well. It will help me home. For I feel the chilly fog from the meadows of Cardinal, as if death claws were grabbing me through and through. As Antigone said, I am neither a dweller among men nor ghosts, but Arabella, when I am dead, you'll see my spirit flitting up and down here among these. Pooh, you mayn't die after all. You're tough enough yet, old man. There's, I mean, that's also common, I think, and certainly my recent experience where somebody is dying and you're in a little bit of denial about it and you're going, oh, poo, you may pull through, old man, even yet. When you know, really, that is uh, unlikely. Yeah, it's, you know, it's weird. It's weird. It's weird the way we deal with and confront death, those of the deaths of those we love and our own. And, you know, on this podcast here, we've had a recent death, that of Jack-Jack, for whom this memorial throne is now named. And now 
very shortly after, I am confronting another imminent death, that of my friend. And I, you know, I don't know how, I, I, I don't know how to deal with it, particularly. I don't know how to confront death other than to just live each moment and kind of live through each moment of a passing. I don't know what, I don't, I don't know how else you do it. I don't know how to take stock, I guess. I don't know how to take emotional stock. I don't know how to take an inventory of my own memories and feelings. And I kind of beat myself up about that. Although if somebody else were telling me this, I would, I would say to that person, we each have our own ways of processing and dealing with these things. And you do the best that you can in difficult circumstances. And these indeed are difficult circumstances for my family and for Arabella and for Sue and certainly for Jude. Jude, after all, is uh, on death's door. And, and, and in, in this case, literally, I mean, he's walking by doors and doorways and, and seeing these different colleges calling out to him, death claws grabbing him through and through. I am neither a dweller among men nor ghosts. Right. And that is exactly where my friend is right now. And, uh, you know, let's, you know, let's, let's, let's just take a little bummed out break. All right. We'll be back on Obscure. All right. We are back on Obscure. Let us return to the text. And the rain of the afternoon showed no sign of abatement. About the time at which Jude and Arabella were walking the streets of Christminster homeward, the widow Edlund, God bless the widow Edlund, who is still alive and is still kicking and feisty, and uh, if anything more alive than most of the characters in this book, because she has a moral center and a centered character that propels her. She knows exactly who she is and is unafraid to be who she is. And you could say, well, Jude's like that too, which is true, except that widow Edlin, and we know nothing about her life, really. We just know she's a widow. She was married at one time. She's not. She she cared for Jude's aunt. She befriended Jude and Sue. She was there for them. She said to Phillotson, essentially, fuck off. Don't get married to her, to Sue again. So we kind of know her character, but we also, I think, can intuit that Widow Edlin, unlike Jude, had never reached beyond her own grasp. So if Jude is guilty of anything, it is that first stirring of discontent that he felt as a young boy looking at Phillotson and dreaming of something larger than he could achieve. So he and Arabella share that. They were both grasping and they both are coming to similar ends in their ways, different ways, but they've both ended up living unhappy lives kind of intertwined with each other. But Edlin seems like she was born into something, 
comported herself according to the rules and has lived a satisfactory life. Now, this is a very different kind of ethos, I think, than uh, in American ethos, where we are encouraged to reach for the brass ring. And if we get it, great. If we don't, well, hey, we tried. And you got nothing to regret. But in this time, in this period, what Hardy seems to be saying is, yeah, you can reach for it, but you're not going to get it, you stupid shithead. And you're going you're gonna to bring ruin upon not only yourself, but everybody you touch. I think for Hardy... Hardy, I think, in his heart, wants, and he is, I mean, look, we, look, we just found a pun, hearty. What in his heart, what he wants is to be free of the shackles of the system, this, ca- this class system that keeps everybody in their place. That's clearly, and, you know, and, and, and marriage is in the place, and, and church is in its place, and these little towns are in its place, and he can feel that things are changing, but he can't see the way forward exactly right? He can't see that there is another way because centuries of British shittiness have locked him in his own cage, in his own unhappy marriage, in his own place uh, in this society. It's a, it's, a, it's a more elevated place than Jude, but we can certainly sense that he feels just as shackled. And maybe Hardy himself kind of envies Jude And if Jude is an avatar for what Hardy would want for himself if he could have it, you know, to be of the earth, to be a stonemason, to to live a life of academic pursuit, to chase, you know, his cousin around, to have a kind of libertine existence with some broad, we can see that maybe Jude is who Hardy wishes he could have been. But because... He's a realist, and because he knows that the great chewing machinery of his culture would do nothing but grind him up and spit him into dust, this is where we end up, inevitably, with his own avatar. He can't have a happy ending, because Tom Hardy is a miserable cur. You heard it here first. I got distracted. The widow Edlin crossed the green and opened the back door of the schoolmaster's dwelling, which she often did now before bedtime to assist Sue in putting things away. Sue was muddling helplessly in the kitchen, for she was not a good housewife, yeah, no duh, though she tried to be, and grew impatient of domestic details. Lord lovey, what do you what do you do that you that yourself for when I've come a purpose? You knew I should come. Oh, I don't know. I forgot. No, I didn't forget. I did it to discipline myself. I've scrubbed the stairs since eight o'clock. I must practice myself in my household duties. I shamefully neglected them. Why should ye? He'll get a better school. Perhaps be a parson in time, and you'll keep two servants. Tis a pity to spoil them pretty hands. Don't talk of my pretty hands, Mrs. Edlin. This pretty body of mine has been the ruin of me already. Oh, pshoo. I've got nobody to speak of. You put me more in mind of a sparrow. But there seems something wrong tonight, my dear. Husband cross? See, you know, what did I say? Earth, wind, and fire, right? She's wind. 
And she is a spirit, as Widow Edlund would call her. And so she's trying to bring herself, she's trying to reduce herself down to earth by doing her earthly duties, scrubbing the stairs since eight o'clock. And she's saying, what are you doing that for, dummy? You know, that's not what you do. That's not who you are. That's what I am. I'm of the mud and slop. You are of the wind and air. And you can try to be what you're not, but it's not going to do you any good. Look at me. I've been who I am forever. I'm happy. I'm satisfied. I come here to help. You just go be your spirit self, Sue. Let me take care of this nonsense. But it's funny because when Sue and Jude were together... I certainly got the impression that Sue kept a good home. I mean, she had some kids, you know, she had, she had the twins and she had little father time and, you know, I think she was doing baked goods and she was, she had uh, sort of fallen from the astral plane down to Jude's level and he had risen somewhat up to hers and they had met, I don't know, hovering 50 feet above the ground, you know, and like an ultra glider and they had reached some kind of spiritual compromise in terms of where they were going to live halfway between earth and heaven. And it seemed to suit them both. But again, it was unsustainable. And the result is murder-suicide. So everything in its place, you know, it's as rigid a caste system as in India. It is unbreakable. In this case, the castes are realms of being, earth, spirit, fire, water, whatever. I don't think we've met a water character yet. Maybe, uh, nah, I don't think we have. I don't even know what that would be. We met a, we met a quack doctor who I miss very much. What was his name? Who was, was the name of the quack doctor? You guys know who I'm talking about. Harold Hill from The Music Man, but I can't remember his name. Uh, great guy. But there seems there seem something wrong tonight, my dear. Husband Cross? No, he never is. He's gone to bed early. Then what is it? I cannot tell you. I have done wrong today, and I want to eradicate it. Well, I will tell you this. This is a common thing with Sue. She says, I'm not going to tell you, and then she says exactly what it is. Jude has been here this afternoon, and I find I still love him. Oh, grossly, I cannot tell you more, which means she's going to tell him more. Ah, said the widow, I told ye how twould be. But it shan't be. I have not told my husband of his visit. It is not necessary to trouble him about it, as I never mean to see Jude any more. But I am going to make my conscience right on my duty to Richard by doing a penance, the ultimate thing I must. (laughs) Come on. You know, the ultimate thing. We know what that is, right? You know? If you've seen Porky's, you know what the ultimate thing is. Hey, we're going to do the ultimate thing. You know what that is. The thing that most brings her down into the muck and slop of life, right? That's the thing that she's going to do as a penance. And, you know, if you're Richard, you're like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? You, I know you don't, you don't want to do this ultimate thing with me. So why are we now doing the ultimate <laughs> that's what I, that's what I'm going to propose to Martha. 
uh, tonight that we do the ultimate and then, and then she will laugh at me and then we won't, um, by doing a penance, the ultimate thing I must, this is how she, how she punishes herself. I wouldn't since he agrees to it being otherwise. And it's gone on three months very well as it is. Yes. He agrees to my living as I choose, but I feel it is an indulgence. I ought not to exact from him. It ought not to have been accepted by me to reverse. It will be terrible, but I must be more just to him. Oh, why was I so unheroic? What is it you don't like in him? asked Mrs. Edlin curiously. I cannot tell you. It is something I cannot say. The mournful thing is that nobody would admit it as a reason for feeling as I do so that no excuse is left me. So she's saying there is something about Phillotson that she doesn't like. But I'm not going to say what it is because it's it's so stupid. Like nobody, you know, nobody would understand. And I think I know what it is. I think he curbs to the left, right? He probably just curves to the left and she finds it unsightly. That's probably all it is. He's got a weird curvature. Look, we deal with it. You know, we all have to deal with weird curvatures, Sue. It's just a fact of life. I don't think that's what it is. Did you ever tell Jude what it was? Never. I've heard strange tales of husbands in my time, observed the widow in a lowered voice. So now we're going to have a ghost story, I guess. They say that when the saints were upon the earth, devils used to take husbands' forms a nights and get poor women into all sorts of trouble. But I don't know why that should come into my head, for it is only a tale. What a wind and rain it is tonight. Well, don't be in a hurry to alter things, my dear. Think it over. So she's like, she's coming in and she's saying, well, I, you know, I used to hear tales of demons taking possession of husbands and making wives do things they never thought they'd do. And I think we all know what she's talking about now. She's talking to, you know, she's talking about butt stuff. She's talking about butt stuff. The widow Edlin's words can be interpreted no other way. I don't think that's what she's talking about. But she's saying, look, don't do it. Whatever you do, don't do the ultimate thing. Think it over, my dear. No, no. I've screwed my weak soul up to treating him more courteously. And it must be now, at once, before I break down. I don't think you ought to force your nature. No woman ought to be expected to. Well, that's a very feminist thing to say, I think. No woman ought to be expected to. And, uh, you know, that's not what I'm saying. Edlin has her, her head screwed on straight in a way that none of the other characters do. You know? Phillotson at least sees the world a little more clearly than other people. No, I wouldn't even say that. Arabella probably sees the world most clearly through what they call a gimlet eye. Or is it gimlet eye? Now I have to look that up. Hold on. Hold on. Because I don't know what a gimlet or a gimlet is, but I feel like I've heard this expression. A gimlet or gimlet eye. I'm going to look it up and then I'm going to get it wrong. And then you're going to yell at me on Twitter or whatever to tell me how much I fucked this up. Okay, 
uh, definition. It's a piercing or watchful eye. But how do you pronounce it? Uh, uh, and I'm just going to, it doesn't say gimlet. Gimlet. Oh, gimlet. Okay. So as I, as I thought, gimlet, a gimlet eye, a watchful eye is not quite what I meant. I meant like, you know, you, like there's a world of bullshit out there. The world is largely composed of bullshit. You and I, maybe you know this, but it's taken me 48 years to figure it out. I didn't understand that. I didn't understand that until this fucker was elected president. I didn't understand. I understood there was bullshit in the world. I didn't understand the world was largely crafted from it. I didn't understand the extent to which every uh, uh, nickel that passes through your hand has been wrung through the prolapsed anus of a bull before it reached you and that there's an entire world out there that runs parallel to the world that I thought I was living in and is in fact more powerful than the world that I thought I was living in and it's 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 a it's it's the world it's a real world and I'm living in the fantasy world where people do things that they say they're going to do because they think it's the right thing to do Right. Where people act ethically and morally and they're not trying to gain an edge and they're not trying to, you know, sharp you out of something, you know, that people just sort of behave in a way that we're that they're taught to behave. And I thought that was the majority of the world. And now I, I, I think that um, there are a lot of people like that out there, but that the world is, in fact, manufactured in a factory that just takes bullshit and shapes it into everything into our lives. Arabella sees that in a way that I never did. Phillotson suspects it. Edlin knows it, but still operates according to her own personal code. And Jude refuses to see it. And Sue is hopeless. She doesn't even smell it, you know? Uh, Or she's in such deep denial that once the scent of it rises into her nostrils. She's so repulsed and so uh, uh, feared that, you know, she comes tumbling down to earth to land on Phillotson's curvy dick. So that's what she's doing right now. It is my duty. I will drink my cup to the dregs. So she's saying, look, as long as I'm living in this world of bullshit, I'm going to ride that Bronco and I'm going to hate it, but I'm going to do it. Speaking of bullshit, time for advertisements. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, 
propels us forward and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back. Let us continue. Half an hour later, when Mrs. Edlin put on her bonnet and shawl to leave, Sue seemed to be seized with vague terror. No, no, don't go, Mrs. Edlin, she implored, her eyes enlarged and with a quick nervous look over her shoulder. But it is bedtime, child. Yes, but... There's the little spare room, my room that was. It is quite ready. Please stay, Mrs. Edlin. I shall want you in the morning. Oh, well, I don't mind if you wish. Nothing will happen to my four old walls, whether I be there or no. She then fastened up the doors, and they ascended the stairs together. Wait here, Mrs. Edlin, said Sue. I'll go into my own room, my old room, a moment by myself. Leaving the widow on the landing, Sue turned to the chamber which had been hers exclusively since her arrival at Mary Green, and pushing to the door knelt down by the bed for a minute or two. She then arose and taking her nightgown from the pillow, undressed and came out to Mrs. Hedlin. A man could be heard snoring in the room opposite. She wished Mrs. Edlin good night, and the widow entered the room that Sue had just vacated. She unlatched the other chamber door and, as if seized with faintness, sank down outside it. Getting up again, she half opened the door and said, Richard. As the word came out of her mouth, she visibly shuddered. <laughs> She is so repulsed by him. He's such a nice guy. I mean, you know, he really is a pretty, he's a, he's a very decent guy. And she is so repulsed by him. I could see if it was his friend, Gingham, you know, was his name Gingham, Gingham, you know, whatever that bowl of pudding was, who's his friend, you know, who's just, you know, just this corpulent job of the hut full of himself type of guy. I could see that, but Phillotson's, you know, a good guy. The snoring had quite ceased for some time, but he did not reply. Sue seemed relieved and hurried back to Mrs. Edlin's chamber. Are you in bed, Mrs. Edlin? She asked. No, dear, said the widow, opening the door. I be old and slow, and it takes me a long while to unray. I hadn't unlaced my jumps yet. I... 
I don't hear him. And perhaps, perhaps, what child? Perhaps he's dead, she gasped. And then I should be free and I could go to Jude. Ah, no, I forgot her and God. Let's go and hearken. No, he's snoring again. (laughs) He's not dead, okay? He's not. You want him to be dead, but you said, Richard, he stopped snoring because he's listening now because you awoke him and he's just like listening, thinking to himself, like, what's going on here? Dare I move? Dare I speak? Because I think what might be happening here is something kind of cool. The, you know, the, the, the most unthinkable thing that could possibly happen, which from my point of view, kind of cool. But no, he didn't answer. And she went back to Edlin, hoping that he's dead. No, he's snoring again, but the rain and the wind is so loud that you can hardly hear anything but between whiles. Sue had dragged herself back. Mrs. Edlin, good night again. I am sorry I called you out. The widow retreated a second time. The strained resigned look returned to Sue's face when she was alone. I must do it. I must. I must drink to the dregs. She whispered, Richard, she said again. Hey, what? Is that you, Susanna? Yes. What do you want? Anything the matter? Wait a moment. He pulled on some articles of clothing and came to the door. Yes. When we were at Chaston, I jumped out of the window rather than you should come near me. I have never reversed that treatment till now, when I have come to beg your pardon for it, and ask you to let me in. Perhaps you only think you ought to do this? I don't wish you to come against your impulses, as I have said. See, Phillotson's being a good guy, right? Can we just agree that he's being a good guy? I, you know, I always, part of me always wants to hold back in saying that he's a good guy because, you know, he manipulated her into marriage essentially, but, but he admitted it. He apologized for it. He let her go. He let her come back. He said, you don't have to sleep with me. She said, cool. She's coming back now. She's saying, I want to sleep with you. He's saying, you don't have to. I don't want you to feel like you have to. And she's saying, but I beg to be admitted She waited a moment and repeated, I beg to be admitted. I have been in error even today. I have exceeded my rights. I did not mean to tell you, but perhaps I ought. I sinned against you this afternoon. How? I met Jude. I didn't know he was coming and, well, I kissed him and let him kiss me. Oh, the old story. Yes, well, it is the old story, Richard. You better get get used to it. Richard, I didn't know we were going to kiss each other till we did. How many times? A good many. I don't know. I'm horrified to look back on it. And the least I can do after it is to come to you like this. Come. This is pretty bad after what I've done. Anything else to confess? No. She had been intending to say, I called him my darling love but as a contrite woman always keeps back a little, that portion of the scene remained untold. She went on, I am never going to see him anymore. He spoke of some things of the past and it overcame me. He spoke of the children, but as I have said, I am glad, almost glad I mean, that they are dead, Richard. It blots out all that life of mine. Well, 
about not seeing him again anymore. Come, you really mean this? There was something in Phillotson's tone now which seemed to show that his three months of remarriage with Sue had somehow not been so satisfactory as his magnanimity or amitative patience had anticipated. Yes, yes. Perhaps you'll swear it on the New Testament. I will. He went back to the room and brought out a little brown testament. Now then, so help you God. She swore. Very good. Now I supplicate you, Richard, to whom I belong and whom I wish to honor and obey as I vowed to let me in. Think it over well. You know what it means. Having you back in the house was one thing, this another. So think again. I have thought. I wish this. That's a complacent spirit. And perhaps you are right. With a lover hanging about, a half-marriage should be completed. But I repeat my reminder this third and last time. (laughs) I mean, he's giving her every opportunity, every opportunity to back out, every opportunity to go back to her chamber, every opportunity to continue this charade of a marriage. And for the third and final time, she says, it is my wish, O God. What did you say, O God, for? I don't know. Yes, you do. But (sighs) he gloomily considered her thin and fragile form a moment longer as she crouched before him in her nightclothes. Well, I thought it might end like this, he said presently. I owe you nothing after these signs, but I'll take you in at your word and forgive you. He put his arm round her to lift her up. Sue started back. What's the matter? He asked, speaking for the first time sternly. You shrink from me again, just as formerly. No, Richard, I, I, I was not thinking. You wish to come in here. Yes, you still bear in mind what it means. Yes, it is my duty. Placing the candlestick on the chest of drawers, he led her through the doorway and lifting her bodily, kissed her. A quick look of aversion passed over her face, but clenching her teeth, she uttered no cry. Mrs. Edlin had by this time... Excuse me. Mrs. Edlin had by this time undressed and was about to get into bed when she said to herself, "Ah, Perhaps I'd better go and see if the little thing is all right. How it do blow in rain. The widow went out on the landing and saw that Sue had disappeared. Ah, poor soul. Weddings be funerals, I believe, nowadays. Fifty-five years ago, come fall, since my man and I married. Times have changed since then. That is the end of the chapter, and I will end there. So weddings and funerals now be the same. And you remember Edlin had said when she got married all those years ago, when she was just a wee lass herself, it was a celebration. It was a festive time. It was a party. You drunk to the dregs, as Sue was saying, but it was a celebratory drink. And and when you got done, you had no money. So you had to borrow money to even just start your life. That's how much fun it was. We just had a party back then. It was just all good times. Me and Mr. Edlin, we had a, we had a, a, a rowdy day. 
dow and we just had i guess that's a fight but it's a it's a fun word anyway we had a rowdy dow and uh, and we just enjoyed ourselves and we had all our friends and we just you know just drank ourselves into a tizzy and it was fun and we didn't take it so serious as you folks are taking it. It's funny because you think about uh, 55 years from 1895, so 1840, yeah, 1840, and you think about that as being a sterner time, I guess, right? That would probably be, uh, what, early Victorian era or maybe late Edwardian era. I don't know if I've got my eras right here. I don't know if Edwardian preceded Victorian, but it makes it sound like I know what I'm talking about. And it just seems like a sterner time, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was a more fun time. I don't know. What do I know about, about British social mores? I know nothing. But now she's saying this wedding, and, and in fact, this is in some ways their true wedding night, feels much more like a funeral. The rain and wind blowing outside, everything's a mess, everything's a disaster. She's going, uh, she's sacrificing herself on the altar of Phillotson after three warnings, which feels biblical, right, in its way. Like, I'll give you three chances to deny me. That, there was, there, there, so there's something Christ-like about that, right? And uh, Sue, uh, in her own Christ-like way, is giving herself to, uh, essentially, her own God. She, she says, oh, God. Um, and now she is surrendering herself fully to God. And this is the penance that she has to pay. So Phillotson is her kind of physical manifestation of this angry God, this kind of Old Testament God that she had forsworn. He makes, he, he makes her swear on the New Testament, the more merciful God, I think. And she, Christ-like, does it and sacrifices herself to him. And I am using the lowercase h, and I'm using the capital H, him. And so that's where I'll leave it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, that was a nice kind of escape for me to read that book. Yeah. It was good. Chapter nine has concluded next episode 74. We very well may end the book. I don't know either 74 or 75. If we end the book on 70, Four, then 75 will be a kind of wrap-up. If we end the book on 75, then there will be no wrap-up. Either way, there'll be some kind of wrap-up, you know? But, um, but yeah, we had a nice time today. And that's all I was looking for, was a nice time. So thank you guys very much. I appreciate you. I am looking back on this experience with some fondness and some uh, joy. And that's all I'm looking for right now is a little fondness and joy. So until next time, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and subscribe, won't you, in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you do not miss one exciting episode. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedron. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black. <laughs>